This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Oh, you guys. Hi. Uh, You know, I'm really psyched today because we've had so many successful CEOs, entrepreneurs, business leaders. You know what we have never had? Someone whose first job was at age 12 as a welder in his dad's machine shop, although something tells me that wasn't his first job. Maybe that was his first paying job. As a welder (laughs) in his dad's machine shop, he became an entrepreneur, founded a multi-billion dollar company that now is in 190 countries, went on to be CEO of a bunch of hugely successful companies, including, hello, DocuSign, who among us hasn't used that now? So he does all that. Then he serves in the federal government and... He just got nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Okay, I'm sorry. What? Are you kidding me? Keith Kroc is also one of the kindest, most generous, and most intelligent people whom I have ever interviewed. But I'm dying, and I've always been dying to know, because we never get into this because our interviews on television are so news-focused, how he did it. How, as a kid growing up in Rocky River, Ohio, did he make such a mark on the world and continues to do so? Keith, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. It's so good to have you tell your story. Thank you for coming on. Well, Liz, it's so great to be with you. And uh, that that was a very overly generous and kind introduction. <laughs> I appreciate it. Am, am I right, Keith? Was that not your first job at age 12. Did you work earlier than age 12? Well, you know, I mean, I shoveled snow and all that kind of stuff and rake leaves <laughs> and cut lawns, but that I was in a big time because I was making 50 cents an hour, man, welded in that shop. I thought I died and gone to heaven. I didn't know what to do with all that kind of money. <laughs> and you just <laughs> embraced it at age 12. What You were in a machine shop. What did your dad do? What did he make? Well, he made, he made these little parts for the big three auto companies. And, you know, in, in good times, we had five people in the shop. In the tough times, it was literally just me and him. And I remember, you know, I'm sitting in his office during a break. I don't know, maybe we have about four, four folks then. And he would answer the phone. And he would go, Litco Industries, John Crock speaking, director of sales. How may I help you? And he's like waking at me. And, and like after he gets off the phone, I go, Dad, man, we only have like four people. And he goes, that's right, Keith. You know, our customers are the big three. We specialize in customer service. Don't let them uh, don't let them come to factory. See how small we are. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, it's like the dorm room picture where you have the Doberman Pinscher standing there and the tiny little dog is trying to tear at the Doberman's arm. Listen, uh, as long as you think you're a big dog, you become the big dog. Uh, it, I mean, it was such a great experience. You know, I remember on Saturdays we go in and we clean out you know, the bathrooms and I'm, and he would work right along with me on Saturdays and we'd be scrubbing the toilets. And all of a sudden I'd, I'd hear him, you know, from the other stall and he'd go, Keith, 
we can't solve world peace, but we can try. I mean, that was just this kind oh, of sensory oh list. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm actually getting emotional here because he, you actually heard your dad say that. And now you are nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Keith, that's that's otherworldly. Well, I'll tell you, Liz, I give all the tea in China if my dad could be here right now. But, you know, I, I, I know he's with me. I mean, uh, for sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's there, there's there's irony in that, I think. Well, I don't want to give it all away as to why you got nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. We got to make our listeners stick with us here because your story and your climb is just as fascinating. And, and you know, I, I want to sort of jump to Purdue. You went to Purdue University. And as you were majoring in engineering, I remember you told me that you were granted a GM fellowship. And so you go to General Motors and before you know it, you, you weren't you like the youngest person to ever get hired at General Motors? Well, the, maybe not the youngest to get hired, but I, obviously I was really young, but the youngest to become the vice president. <laughs> okay, sorry. That's even better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean they, they were so great. You know, my dad would always say, he would go, Keith, you save money for three reasons. Number one, for your home. So your family has a nice home. Number two, for your retirement. So you don't mooch off your kids. Number three, for your children's education. And you would always mortgage the first two for the third. So when he heard that I got a full ride to General Motors, because they came or uh, from General Motors, they came on campus mm. uh, my freshman year and they, they and they gave full ride. I mean, it was everything and a living stipend, all that. Uh, yeah, I remember when he first said when that letter came in, he goes, oh, you know, these big companies are all big talkers. Not going to happen. to." And then, and then when he found out I got it, he goes, well, I always told you Generous Motors was the greatest company. <laughs> in <the world."> <laughs> <laughs> Generous Motors. There you, you go. Know, Generous Motors. Oh, my gosh. It well, was, What was it about you? Do you think that. General Motors spotted where they put you on the fast track and they made you the youngest vice president ever. What was it that you gave to them that you think they saw? Heck, Liz, I, I wish I knew. But, um, you know, uh, I, I think, um, you know, I think it was just a combination of a bunch of things. And, you know, I grew up in the all the manufacturing area, obviously, um, and, and all that, but I got a great opportunity, um, after, and they sent me to business school straight away too. And not only was it full ride, but it was also half salary. So I was the guy buying the beers, you know, and cool <laughs> all the time. Everybody loved me, you know, I no no problemo. And, and, uh, uh, when I came, when I came out of business school, uh, they said, Keith, you know, what do you want to do? You want to go back to Cadillac? Cause I was working, you know, summers as production for him. They gave us great jobs as a fellow. And I said, well, there's this area of robotics. I'd like to, you know, I just did it like my, it'd be like your second year kind of almost thesis at Harvard business school on robotics. And they said to me, they go, well, we, you know, we have a super secret development in our research labs uh, most sophisticated robots in the world. We don't know what we're going to do with it. And we don't know what we'd have you do. I go, that sounds perfect. Mm. 
And so I ended up putting a pitch on to uh, General Motors Board of Directors in the New York Treasurer's Office because because the summer between years at business school, I, I worked for Rick Wagner, who was, you know, sure. later became chairman and CEO of General Motors. Sure. And and so I knew that, uh, you know, those guys. So I put the pitch on, you know, at that time I was like 24 and I said, General Motors should get in the robotics business. And they said, OK. And I'd be like, oh, the board, they go, how should we do it? I go, uh, could I come back next board meeting? <laughs> and so I came back about later and I said, you know, we have great sophisticated technology, but we need a broad product line. And, they, and I said, so we've got a joint venture with somebody. And they go, OK. Ooh, I go, can I come back next board meeting? <laughs> Let me think about this. And, and then I came back and I said, we should joint venture with Fujitsu Fanic. They have the broadest product line. They also have 70% market share in the thing called NC controllers, which are the brains of the robots. And now understand at this time, all those board members were former World War II veterans. And they go like this. They go, you mean partner with the Japanese? (laughs) Oh, yes. And we did. And we ended it. And to this day, it's the largest manufacturer of industrial robots in the world. It was great in the average age of our team was like, I don't know, 29, 30 years old. I mean, we were young and we put IBM, Westinghouse and uh, uh, Cincinnati, Mil- wow. well, Cincinnati Milicron survived, but, but we became the industry leader. So, um, and a lot of those folks that I work with back then there, a bunch of them came out to Silicon Valley with me too. And so we built some other companies. So we kind of kept that team going. As a matter of fact, a number of uh, came to the United States State Department with me when I was running U.S. economic diplomacy. Well, that's that's an interesting point because you you found that team, you found the people you liked, and then you said, you know what, I'm going west, young man. I'm going to Silicon <laughs> Valley, and you founded Ariba Networks. And for people who don't know, that's a that's a very very successful, complicated software, just brilliant company. As I said, 190 countries now, and that's really where you made your billions. Um, but as you co-founded it, let's go back to day one, uh, you know, sitting on orange crates and, and making, you know, designing your own stationery. I mean, it's not easy to start a business. What was that like back then? Well, you know, it was, it was interesting because, when I uh, I came out from General Motors, the uh, the first company was a total uh, failure. So I learned a lot. It, it, that's a whole another interesting story. But um, then we, and we built another company called Rasna, which we changed the way mechanical engineering software was done, and 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 we were about ready to take it public. Morgan Stanley was taking us out, and then Paramount Technologies bought us. That was back in. 95. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's kind of like, well, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do now. And um, I took six months off and then I went to uh, the guys from Benchmark Capital said, Croc, why, why don't you come join us in the venture capital business? I go, well, I don't know about that. I go, I reckon I can do that when I retire. I said, I'm more an operating guy. So mm-hmm. I joined him as the first entrepreneur in residence. And so this was when the internet first came out. We were looking at all these deals. And then a bunch of the old guys who I'd worked with before at Rasna said, hey, we got to start our, our own thing. Mm-hmm. And we built the first enterprise application written for the Internet. We started with seven founders. <sighs> um, we were cash flow positive from the second quarter of existence. Stop. We, we Yep. You were making then. money. That, that Folks, that's rather unheard of when you're starting up a company. You usually have to spend to grow. 
it was it was unbelievable. And we doubled our revenue quarter over quarter for 12 quarters in a row. We took it public after two and three quarters years. And now to this day, the Ariba and we invented business to business electronic commerce. And now to this day, it transacts $3.7 trillion of commerce over the Ariba network on an annual basis, which is more than Amazon, eBay, and Alibaba combined. Mm. And while you're doing all of this, let me just point out to our listeners, you and your wife are having five kids (laughs) and you're a dad as well. Well, I look at that list. That's my favorite thing in the whole world. And uh, I'm very, I've been really, really blessed with five really great children. And, um, you know, I love them dearly. I mean, that's, that's my happy place. Well, let me just also, you know, everyone's I can I can hear at least some people's eyes rolling because, listen, it's very easy to say that it is hard as a mom. I can tell you there are points where it is so hard. And the day I met Keith was a couple of years ago when I was asked to go out to Silicon Valley and moderate a conversation on stage for a huge group of Silicon Valley entrepreneur leaders. And it was in this huge huge room. And they said, it'll be Keith Kroc, who's at the State Department right now. He, you know, co-founded Ariba. He was also the CEO of DocuSign. We're backstage in the dark, waiting to be introduced. And you asked me about my kids. And at the time, my daughter was a teenager and she was Mm -hmm. tough. She was tough. Like it was testing me. It really, it was a very difficult time for me because I'm trying to be a working mom and provide for them and private school. And I turned to you and I said, did you ever deal with that? Were were your daughters tough? And you said, oh, my son, Liz, my son, he was tough on me. And you, you reveal to me some of the tougher times and where you yeah. just come back at him. He'd say teenage mean stuff and you'd come back at him and say, you know, say what you want. I'm always going to love you. Yeah. Good memory. Yeah. Well, it I was, mean, it helped me get through the next couple of years. <laughs> well, by the way, nobody ever said that would be easy, but right. it's right. the greatest thing you could possibly do. And I have no doubt that uh, and your daughter, in addition to being genetically perfected, Liz, is a great young lady. <laughs> She's amazing now. She's in college. They do come around, don't they? But it, yeah, it is quite amazing that, that you were so in love with with starting companies and, and leading companies that you then jumped to DocuSign. You were the CEO there. But then it's interesting for a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who who cares about the environment you get a call from the Trump administration and they want you to serve. Was that a difficult decision? Well, you know, uh, it was a fast decision. Let me put it that way, because I had, uh, you know, so I'm running a DocuSign. We had uh, gotten up to about 500 million unique users. We were in every major country. And the one that we weren't in was China. So I went on a two week listening trip and Liz, as you know, uh, you know, I've been going to China since 1981. Mm-hmm. I'm a lover of Chinese history, culture, sure. people, certainly the food. And um, what I saw over there three years ago or three and a half years ago was, you know, their market competition amped up into a new form of techno economic competition. I also saw 
you know, their drone swarm technology. They were telling me to download 10 cent every 30 minutes. It's the first time I heard about the one belt, one road. It looked like a military supply chain to me. And as I'm flying back home, I'm going, well, heck, all I know is the guys with the best technology win the war. Mm -hmm. And I go, I wonder if the guys in Washington know about this. So I went out to Washington, not knowing really anybody. Next thing you know, you know, they say, hey, Keith, have you ever thought about serving your country? And I go, that's a dream I never knew I had. Mm, okay. I said, I'd be honored. They go, can you move? I go, I could move anywhere in the world. I don't know. I guess you just say those things. But um, it was the greatest experience of my life, Liz. It really was. Well, it you became undersecretary of state and it was a great experience. And it was also an eye-opening and very serious experience as it pertained to what you felt was one of the most important things you actually had to do. And that was to be the highest ranking official in decades to go to Taiwan, which of course China believes it owns and Taiwan does not want to be owned by China. And no U.S. leaders had really gone there so as to not inflame, you know, Chinese anger. And you said, no, I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Liz, to the free world. Yes. A, a peaceful Taiwan is a linchpin of democracy and really a role model of freedom. Now, to she, an independent Taiwan dispels the Chinese Communist Party myth that democracy is incompatible with the Chinese culture. True. And he wants it gone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and now, Liz, for most companies, the consequences of a China Taiwan conflict would be devastating and particularly catastrophic for the high tech industry. You know, that's due to Taiwan's dominant position in the semiconductor manufacturing area. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. I know a lot of you have had this experience because for those of us who in 2020 were all sent home and we were stuck in a lockdown during the pandemic, we had a lot of time on our hands and I saw an ad for Masterclass and I thought, I want to better myself. I want access to all of these brilliant people who teach you things. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with more than 200 plus of the world's best and smartest. For just under 10 bucks a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And I don't care, you can wake up one morning and say, I want to learn about business. And then another where you say, I want to learn how to survive in the wild if I have no water and no fire to make me warm. You can access Masterclass on your phone, on your computer, smart TV, or even in audio mode. And the classes totally make a difference. Don't wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. You know, China is very much, it's like the riddle, the whole, you know, riddle in a mystery, etc. you know, all a Churchill. I, I do have to say that, that China, while a miracle, is such a conundrum for me because it is capitalism dripping with blood from people's jaws, capitalism. And yet the government 
controls thought when it wants to. And the government has been very tough when it comes to human rights abuses and specifically yeah. the, the Muslim Uyghurs. Yeah. You became the first, um, the first U.S. diplomat to publicly label China's treatment of the Uyghurs as genocide. What brought you to that point? Well, you know, what I saw at the State Department in terms of uh, General Secretary Xi having no regard for human life and what was going on over there is beyond my wildest imagination. Well, like what? I mean, let our listeners know what. Well, what I mean, you- what, what they do in Xinjiang is is genocide. I mean, everything from torture to forced birth control, um, mm. you know, I mean, total surveillance. I mean, obviously, you know, I also wasn't responsible for infectious diseases. So what they what went on in the Wuhan lab, uh, you know, I mean, they they think nothing but to kill people or ship them off to their equivalent of the gulag, those kind of things. Um, And just constant uh, intimidation and harassment and all those kind of things. So when uh, uh, so this I went on the Neil Cavuto show on July 4th. 2020. And I'll never forget because I um, I had come back from the State Department. I was with my family. And so I'm on TV, you know, doing a classic thing where you wear a coat and tie. But I got my bathing suit on, you know, uh, below my waist. <laughs> and and it, and they were, talk, were talking about Hong Kong and showing that in Xinjiang. And that's when I came out and I and I, I said they're committing genocide there. And yeah, I remember going back to the State Department and the lawyers go, hey, you know, you can't say that. I go, well, yes, I can. And I just did. And it is genocide. Look up the definition um, in the United Nations article on genocide. And it's just it's horrible what they're doing over there. Good for and- you. Good for you. I'm enraged right now regarding what's going on in Ukraine, where you have 20,000 possibly killed in Mariupol alone, mass graves, just civilians, some with shot in their head with groceries lying by their bodies. They were doing nothing. That's am I correct? That's genocide. That is genocide, Liz. And um I mean, it goes to show you, you know, this this experiment we're living in in terms of freedom. You know, it's 250 years old, this democracy. And there's a lot of bad guys out there. And it's if you think about it, it's actually the natural order of things. It's uh, being a democracy goes against all the laws of physics. You got to fight every day for that. And. Putin and she these are these are genuine real real bad guys mm. and um, they only care about regime preservation and domination that's it they don't care about anybody else and I'll tell you what when I look at those uh, Ukrainians they are an inspiration Zelensky's an inspiration oh, aren't they? these guys are heroes they have taught the world of courage and I'll tell you what's interesting for me Liz I've you know my 10 year old twins my youngest Emma and JD to watch through their eyes what they see on TV and they now understand that freedom 
is worth fighting for. And in order to keep freedom, you have to put your life on the line, which, you know, typically growing up in the U.S. with the white picket fence yeah. and the dog and the 2.5 kids, you just take it for granted. They don't see it. You know, they, they don't understand yeah. what it means. And yeah. I show my kids, my heroes, I work for Building Homes for Heroes. We build the, you know, the customized mortgage-free homes for our worst wounded coming back from the war. Look what they have uh, sacrificed. Great. But you look in Ukraine and you see that these are the sons of liberty, right? The sons of liberty fought against Absolutely. the British. They didn't have the best guns or the uniforms, but Absolutely. they had that heart and they were ready to protect their country. Absolutely. It's amazing. Well, I, I it, want to just jump to the the nomination of the Nobel Peace Prize. And basically for, for people, you know, to really understand, it was very much because you deployed what you called this trust principle doctrine in building the clean yeah. network alliance of democracies to defend against you know, technological authoritarianism, safeguard against global economic security, but preserve the democracy in Taiwan and protect yeah. the human rights. How did that happen? Well, it was un- it was unexpected. I didn't know about it until uh, the nomination had already gone through. So uh, a number of people uh, nominated me. And, and, you know, as I told you on your show earlier, I mean, it's very, very humbling. It's also obviously about the team. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things for me, Liz, was going into the government. The big question in my mind was, could you make a difference? And I think that's a question in a lot of people's mind going in from the private sector. And we need more of them, actually, particularly from the value creation industries like manufacturing or like uh, high tech. And we were able to make a difference. And I brought in a great bipartisan uh, 12 folks from the private sector. And we combined that team with these incredible foreign service officers and civil servants, which, uh, you know, uh, as I mentioned before, when you see these folks, you thank them for their service, just like you would thank a military person. And so we were able to push back uh, and really first government led initiative in terms of defeating China's master plan to control 5G, which both sides of the hour hitting a panic button on, you know, two years ago. Um, and, and we use that principle. And, you know, and that's in contrast to the Russian and the China power principle of co-option, coercion, uh, right. all these all these things where we the trust principles are basically things that protect our democracy. Things like respect for rule of law, respect for property of all kinds, respect for sovereignty of nations, respect for the environment, respect for human rights, respect for the press. And these are things that we honor in our country and the free world. Mm. But China and Russia does not. As a matter of fact, they use them against us for their strategic advantage. So, Liz, if I'm competing against you... Let's say this, and I'm I'm China, and you're you're that Silicon Valley CEO, yeah, and I can yeah. steal your intellectual property. I don't have to be transparent. I can use slave labor. Right. I can use coal-fired power plants. I am the law, or I don't have to obey the law. I'm going to beat you every time. Hmm. So what we did is we actually took those trust principles, and in one jujitsu move, we used it against them. We actually weaponized the very principles that protect our freedoms, and that was trust principle. Brilliant. Brilliant. I, I mean, I'm so honored to know you. And it is the case. You know, they would say, oh, it's so nice to be nominated for an Oscar. It doesn't matter if you don't win. In this case, just to be nominated. 
Oh, that's it's, that's good enough, isn't it? Yeah, I'll tell you, it is what a great honor. You know, and it's I think it surprises everybody except one person. That's my 95 year old mom. I call her up on a Zoom call. I go, Mom, she has my two sisters, you know, side by side. I go, Mom, I'm nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. And she goes, Of course you are. I always knew you would be. Of course. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it is so damn funny. But, but oh I mean, it's funny. But, Your but, you mom know, sounds amazing. I mean, she, you know, when I used to play football, you could hear, we'd be in the huddle. We could hear it from the stands. She'd go, Keith, kill him. You know? <laughs> Crock is that your mother? Tell her to shut the heck up. No, you tell her to shut the heck up. I'm not telling her. No. Okay, just run to play. Let's go. Well, both your dad and your mom. Oh, I can see yeah. where you got some of it. But boy, you're <laughs> such an original, Keith. And I am honored to know you and honored uh, to have you tell this story to our Everyone Talks to Liz listeners. They, I know, are seizing upon this story. Please, please um, come back. And when you win, if you win, uh, if you don't, we still want you back. Uh, it's just it's just such a great story to hear. And thank you for telling well. it. You got it, Liz. And it's such an honor. And, you know, one of the things we just announced two weeks ago at, at my alma mater, Purdue, we announced the Kroc Institute for Tech Diplomacy that carries on that mission mm. of uh, com- uh, advancing freedom uh, through trusted technology. So it's a great you've been so kind to me, Liz. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, Keith. And, and, uh, and by the way, yeah, I really yeah. love that you've gone back to Purdue to give back. You know, uh, there are a lot of people I've met in this world who go to state schools and and then they don't want to. They get really hoity-toity and they, you know, maybe they did, like you, get their higher, higher education at Harvard or maybe Yale. And they only want to sort of slather the love on those schools because they think it's more prestigious. You have gone back to Purdue. And I love that. Well, you know, the Boilermakers, you know, it was my dad's favorite after uh, dinner uh, dull beverage. So, you know. <laughs> dad, dad is really, really toasting you yeah, up know, there man. in heaven. You, you never he really is. Beer. <laughs> All right, Keith. Oh, my gosh. Come visit us again. And thank you so I much. Thank you. Thank you. All the best. Did I tell you guys, right? You'd never heard a story like that. I've been telling, we're now at, like, I I lost count, 200, 250. um, And we're doing so wonderfully so much because of you guys. You tune in, you spread the word, you listen to these stories, and I know you seize upon them. And you use them to your advantage. Listen, take ideas from everybody and everywhere. And thank you so much for joining us. And I'll see you Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on The Claim and Countdown. Bye. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.